Sinha, Sri Muradji Bhai Desai and distinguished guests. I have great pleasure in welcoming you to this year's Patel Lectures by Sri Muradji Bhai Desai. The subject of this year's lectures is Indian unity, a dream and a reality. About the title, some explanation is necessary. Originally, the title was given as Integration and Consolidation of India. But when the lectures were in the process of being prepared, it was thought that in the context of the wider concept of unity as developed in the world, the title Indian Unity, a Dream and a Reality would be more appropriate. It was in 1955, All India Radio introduced a program of lectures in memory of Sardar Vallabhbhai Patel, who was our first minister for information and broadcasting. These lectures are designed to contribute to the existing knowledge and to promote awareness of contemporary problems. All India Radio is highly grateful to Sri Murarji Bhai Desai for accepting this assignment. He has selected a subject which is very much in our minds today. The Indian unity is indeed a mighty theme and calls for the full play of historical imagination. And it is fitting that this year's lecture should be delivered by one who, inspired by the vision and genius of the Sadar, played a prominent role in the emergence of the new India. The masterly treatment of this theme <coughs> by Sri Desai reveals his deep insight into the complex process of history. The vast panorama of Indian history is vividly unfolded and the picture of Indian unity is clearly emerging. The lectures will be broadcast in four installments from today. Sri Murarji Bhai Desai and friends, for me, it is no ordinary occasion in which I am participating. Today we begin a series of two lectures by Sri Murarji Bhai in memory of one of the greatest sons of India, Sardar Patel, to whom we owe so much, not only in what many of us are here today, but also what the country and our organization have achieved so far. <coughs> it is a very fortunate combination of circumstances that I should be presiding at this series of lectures being delivered by one who was a close associate and follower of Sardar on a subject which is bound to deal <coughs> with a great deal of what Sardar did for this country. Both Sri Murarji Bhai and I have had the privilege to serve at his feet for a number of years. It fell to Sri Murarji to serve him in his capacity as a minister of Bombay government and also as one of his trusted lieutenants in the Gujarat Provincial Congress Committee. In addition to these, it fell to him to collaborate with Sardar in some of the work connected with the Indian states and maintenance of the country's security 
particularly during the different period preceding and following partition and events leading to the police action in Hyderabad. Sri Murarji is one of the most ardent devotees of the ideal of Indian unity and integrity. It is therefore fitting that he should be speaking on that subject today and tomorrow and contributing to it not only his intimate knowledge of contemporary events but also his study of the processes and phases through which the development of that idea and its achievement have passed. I am quite sure that you all will be looking forward to his treatment of the subject with the clarity, forthrightness and directness of expression with which we all associate him. For me, the occasion has a sanctity which almost overwhelms me. My association with Sardar was in its length co-terminus with the struggle for independence. It passed through the various phases through which that struggle passed, and after that, it was my proud privilege to come into close and intimate daily contact with him as the member of the interim government and in the post-independence era, which in many ways may be called Sardar's era. During all these years, I had the good fortune to enjoy from him a paternal interest and guidance and a mentor's inspiration and instructions. Throughout, his eyes soured affection on me and his words were for me not only words of wisdom, but like those which fall from a loving and benevolent mother exercising healthy and vigilant influence over the thoughts and actions of her favorite child. I had the privilege of watching him at close quarters through many moments of triumph and crisis and of being a close student of his masterly tactics, his uncanny te techniques, his wonderful sense of judgment, both of men and moments, and his skillful handling of delicate negotiations and constitutional and administrative problems. I have often wondered how a man of his age and his health could grapple with all these with such consummate ease as to turn difficult situations into playthings of his deftness and skill. Seldom is it given to individuals like me to walk at the same time and in the same plane with the majesty and greatness of this type. I consider myself fortunate that providence vouchsafed to me those years of historical achievement in which I could receive from him not only benevolence and blessings of a lifetime, but also guidance and inspiration of generations. To us, who have been witnesses of the achievement of Indian unity and integrity, after having experienced the bitterness and disappointment of partition, and having been so close to what would have been an earth-shaking disaster of balkanization of this country, the days through which we have passed seem not only yesterday, but even today. But to many of you who have been only readers of events, what Sri Murarji Bhai is going to say would probably appear as a scholarly record of history. I am quite sure you must be eager to hear him unfold the past of hopes and disappointments, failures and successes, 
and tragedies and achievements which the story of Indian unity is. I shall therefore request Srimurarji Bhai to deliver his Sardar Patel Memorial Lecture on Indian unity, a dream and reality. Mr. President and friends, when I received the invitation to deliver a series of memorial lectures associated with the memory of a great and illustrious son of India, who shed his luster on the Indian scene until the other day, and the reflection of whose light we find on the face of the country even today, I felt honored. At the same time, I was overwhelmed by the weight of responsibility that is attached to the acceptance of the invitation. However, I thought that the best way to try to do justice to the occasion was to speak on a subject which was dearest to his heart, namely Indian unity, for which he labored hard and incessantly in the evening of his life. Moreover, as I survey before my mind the panorama of India today, in the context of what it was when we secured independence, I cannot help feeling that but for the historic revolution he brought about on the face of this country, and for the miracle he wrought by achieving it through peaceful and persuasive means, we would not have been in the comparatively comfortable position that we are today. We would scarcely have been able to achieve that all-round economic development and the position of strength in international councils had not India been one and indivisible. Let us not forget that even the dismemberment of that part of geographical Indian subcontinent, which has chosen to seek its own destiny by itself, has caused a dislocation to our economy and other aspects of our existence, which has its repercussions even today. The amount of concern and anxiety that the state of Pakistan has been causing us ever since partition should be a sufficient warning and lesson to us as to what the shape of things would have been if even 1% of the 562 states, which was the British legacy to us, had chosen to follow the same path of separate existence and separate sovereignties. When Sardar's death on the 15th December 1950 plunged the whole country in the gloom of sorrow and grief, it was said of him that maker of history had passed into history. Today, as I think of the change that has come over us, and as I look back on the history of this country since the dawn of civilization, I cannot but help feeling and I'm sure you will share that feeling with me, that that was the finest tribute that could be paid to his memory even this day and perhaps for all time to come. Before I deal with the subject of Indian unity, for a little while I should like to take your mind to the world stage itself and to present to you a brief survey of how the idea of unity developed in the world countries as we see them today. There can scarcely be any doubt that it is not necessarily geography that has dictated the course of unification, but language, religion, culture, dynastic ambitions, and political developments have all combined to draw the map of the world as we see it today. In some parts of the globe, colonial ambitions of contesting European powers 
have settled the boundaries of the states, while in, while in others, limits of territorial expansion set either by geographical considerations or by the mental vision or horizon of the leading guides of a community have fashioned their borders. In many countries, it is the disintegration of a sprawling empire after the disappearance of the strong power that held it together that has made it possible for different nationalities to carve out their own place in the sun. Perhaps it would be as well if I illustrated my remarks by some examples. Let us look at Europe as it is today. There is no doubt that the idea of unification of Spain, France, Italy, and Germany was built first on the ruins of the empires that were formed like the domains of Charlemagne or the Holy Roman Empire. It received its final impetus from the crashing of Napoleonic ambitions. In fact, most of developments of nationality in Europe followed the territorial pattern of the Napoleonic Empire. When in the post-Napoleonic era, national consciousness developed in these territories, it was easy to match political practice with idealistic ambition and thereby to achieve unity. It was the breakup of the Prussian and Austro-Hungarian empires after the First World War that gave the charter of existence to nationalities like Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, Austria, and Hungary. Russian unity itself was forged out of the expansionism of the Tsars superimposed on the geography of the entire tract. The accretion of Siberia and the Central Asian republics to Russia was not the result of any working out of the concept of unity or nationality, but the outcome of historical accidents having their origin principally in the dynastic aims of a succession of Tsarist regimes. It has been one of the greatest contributions of Soviet policies that this heterogeneous union has been held successfully together and a multiple state has obtained a unified existence, notwithstanding cultural and other autonomies of the constituent states. On the other hand, the unity of Great Britain was definitely the result of the impact of geography, which enabled the Britons to conquer the barriers of language and even religion from time to time. Yet, political, religious, and linguistic differences kept Ireland of today aloof from the process of unification, and even the modern process of shrinkage or of distance has not brought the two countries, with only a small sea separating them, closer to each other. If from the European scene we turn our thoughts to the Americas, here developments were initially colonial, but subsequently, at least in the United States, became philosophical or idealistic. Canadian unity between the French and the English parts was not the result of any ideology, but a compulsion of circumstances in which one part, divorced from its mother country, had to throw its lot with the other, which began to develop under the influence of its own maternal link, but as a daughter in her mother's household and a mistress in her own. The division between the colonies which now constitute Canada and the colonies which originally fought against the English colonial rule and formed the United States was really based on a territorial settlement rather than on conditions of geography. The formation of the United States of America, however, was partly the result of the power of ideas and partly due to the working of the economic and political forces. There is no doubt that the concept of liberty and unity 
in the 13 colonies that combined to wage the war of liberation against the British crown was inspired by the ideas and philosophies of the French Revolution and was helped in realization, curiously enough, by the strong will and obstinacy of a foreign dynastic ruler transplanted on the English throne. It is one of the significant ifs of history as to what would have happened if the liberal forces in Britain had asserted themselves against that obstinacy and brought about a relationship between the mother country and the colony analogous to that which prevailed between Britain and Canada subsequently. From the triumph of Wolf on the heights of Abraham, not only begins the history of the United States, but also springs a great and powerful force of philosophies and ideas which have not only ruled the development of the United States, but have also affected developments in many parts of the world. Many world countries have derived their inspiration from the broadening of liberty in the United States, which was at that time a virgin field of natural and physical resources. As we travel back nearer home and consider the development of nationhood in North Africa and the Middle East, we again find geography subordinated to cultural, religious, and linguistic influences, which have resulted in the breakup of the Greek, Roman, and Ottoman empires into Iran, Turkey, Iraq, Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. Morocco and Algeria are the recent fruits that have fallen from the tree of French colonialism. It is a significant feature of development of unification and nationality in North Africa and Middle East that neither religion nor language nor culture has been able to unite the various countries into an integrated whole and that even the idealistic perfection of Arabian unity has been eluding their grasp. It is possible from this example to infer that ultimately the idea of a broader unity between the groups of the same religion, language, and culture can develop fruitfully only under the auspices of a specific unity genius or under compulsions of history or geography. It is only under such influences that unity can be forged between different religious, linguistic, cultural, or ethnological groups or between different states of the same cultural, linguistic, and religious groups. As we survey the Asiatic countries, we find in China the process of unification crossing cultural or geographical boundaries under the impact of dynastic expansion helped by community of religion. In Japan, this concept of unity, imperialism and colonialism marched hand in hand under one flag until they received a counter-thrust from the forces of world history. In Southeast Asia, on the other hand, the Chinese colonialism expanded not under the Chinese flag, but under the auspices of Chinese trade and settlements, where geographical factors, mostly due to mountains, forests, and rivers, played a decisive role. The growth of nationalism became subdivided despite an overall pervasive common religion. Thus, we find the map of this region containing comparatively small countries, each with its own loyalty or subloyalty and its own peculiar racial, economic, and cultural distinctiveness. The island territories of this region, which at one time developed under the inspiration of South Indian cultural and trade expansion, and subsequently became the subject of religious as well as imperial changes, have only recently been subjected to a process of unification under the impact of the breakup 
of Dutch and British colonialism and the development of modern means of communications. In this case, the shrinkage of distances has been a stimulating factor in the acceleration of the process of unification. After this brief and very general survey of the manner, shape, and form of growth of unification in different parts of the globe, the survey of development of the concept of unity in India brings out striking dissimilarities. It is impossible in our present state of historical knowledge to give the beginnings of history and civilization in India with chronological definiteness. There is, however, no doubt that the geographical unity of India has been a settled fact of nature even before the dawn of civilization. The subordinate facts of geography, however, seem to have kept different settlements of civilization in compartments so that each developed in its surrounding territories. It is likely that it was in this process of parochial expansion of culture and civilization that India felt the impact of Aryan invasion from the north. The Aryans were essentially working under tribal structure and initially the limits of tribal settlements were set by the big rivers of the pre-partition Punjab and the present Uttar Pradesh. Even within these geographical limitations, however, the concept of a universe developing under the eye of an all-powerful and all-pervading architect, combining the various elemental forces into a unity of thought and action, seems to have gripped the minds of the seers and thinkers of the early Vedic period. It is, however, doubtful whether the combination of geographical and idealistic unity of the country found any expression before the epics. The deification of Rama, the visionary or the actual torchbearer of Aryan culture in the south, who along with his consort and his brother made light of swollen rivers or dense forests and who braved both the elements and fierce inhabitants of the parts through which he traveled, is to my mind the first tribute of dimensional magnitude that was probably ever paid to a unifying force in the history of any country. It must also be borne in mind that the vision of the country by the author of the epic for the first time embraced the territory beyond the Vindhyas and reached the shores of the Bay of Bengal and the Indian Ocean. The Mahabharat presents a scene of development of India much more extensive than that of Ramayana and in the many sayings of Lord Krishna and in the narration of the history of the Pandavas their travels, their alliances, and their marriages, along with the exploits of Lord Krishna himself, we find that not only was the torch of Aryan civilization carried to the far corners and areas of the country, but along with that torch had marched the feelings and emotion of oneness of Indian polity. Through the elaborate systems of fairs and pilgrimages and the march of sovereign supremacy, different parts of the country were brought together. The growth of Hindu religion as a federation of main and subordinate concepts had promoted this process of idealistic unification, but the political scene was still that of conflicting ambitions, clashing interests, and warring states. Even the philosophical developments were subjected to a synthesis by the great Lord in the divine message that he conveyed to Arjun on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. That message is an integration of life, religion, and philosophy.
the like of which does not exist in any country in the world. If I were to trace the development of idealistic unity in India, I would certainly find in the epic of Mahabharat not only the beginnings but also the glimpses of such concept. Since then, in my humble judgment, the idealist theory of India, as one in the abstract, has found a place, though not a reality. In the diversity of languages, castes, races and cultures, there was an underlying unity of an abstract oneness. A geographical entity, a federal religion, and many common features of a growing civilization and social system. In developing this idea of oneness, there is no doubt that institutions like pilgrimages, fairs, religious festivals, and occasional big gatherings or congresses of community and religion played a significant part. Politically and territorially, as well as historically, however, the real unity remained a dim and distant dream even beyond the pale of the mental horizon of those days. Sometimes facts are stranger than fiction, and it is one such strangeness that emerges from a historical fact. Not until the invasion of Alexander the Great was the placidity of the Indian scene disturbed to the point of being rudely shaken out of daydreams and lethargy. It was then that a historical combination of statecraft and military science was forged between Chandragupta Maurya and his fearless and outstanding minister Kautilya. Whilst Chandragupta felt the need of combining the different conflicting forces into a mighty challenge to a foreign foe, Kautilya provided the philosophical as well as the practical structure for that integration. Looking at matters in a worldly sense, there is no doubt that it was a perfect combination and consequently the results could not but be remarkable. For the first time, a major part of North India directly and some parts of South India indirectly were brought under the sway of a common system of administration, even though under imperialistic inspiration. To this rich legacy succeeded the mighty Ashoka, who belongs to the rare category of philosopher kings. It was under his regime that after a bloody conflict with a country which was a threshold between the north and the south and under the impact of an attractive religious philosophy we seemed to hold out an assurance of relief and change from the superstition-laden Hindu religion of the time practically the whole of India was held under one sway there is no doubt that a unified and uniform system of administration was sought to be introduced throughout Ashoka's kingdom but the regime lacked both the popular base and the strength of that popular feeling, which alone can give an abstract unity a reality and a form. The result was that soon after the hand of philosopher king was removed, due to the weakness of his successors and the thin airiness of the changes in terms of basic feelings, traditions and ideas of the common people, the country relapsed into its old ways, old situations and old conditions. The picture of India soon after Ashoka was one of sickening disintegration and that picture lasted for well nigh 1,000 years with slight variations and erratic interludes. As this period was nearing the, the close came the golden age of the Guptas in whose reigns again the country saw glimpses of Ashokan glory. 
Those glimpses, however, were confined to the north, and except that Samudragupta's Ashwamedha Yagna highlighted in a dim way the idealistic oneness of the country, and to the attempts of King Harsha, another philosopher king of those days, to subjugate the south. Indian history then witnessed a remarkable crusading genius in Shankaracharya, who almost singly brought back the orthodox Hindu religion to its original pedestal and gave the death blow to Buddhistic attempts to supplant it altogether. Shankaracharya was not only an apostle of religion, but in many ways also a force of unity and the manner in which he distributed the seeds of his philosophy in order to cover the different parts within geographical unity is a tribute to his philosophical genius as well as practical sense. There was, however, no relief from disintegration until the 13th century after Christ. In between, India had to face another series of invasions from the north, and this time the invasions constituted at first a remarkable repetition of plunder raids and subsequently the establishment of an alien dynasty, an alien religion, and an alien structure of fiscal, cultural, and social systems. Into a country already territorially divided and containing many compartments of culture, creed, race, and religions, was injected a foreign material containing similar compartments, though guided and inspired by a common religion and a common language. Henceforward, the history of India could hardly unfold itself as a picture of the working of the process of unification, even in a backward, slow, or imperceptible form. On the other hand, it could be aptly described in the words of Gibbon, the great historian of Roman Empire, when he said, the history of Asiatic dynasties is one unceasing round of valor, greatness, degeneracy, and decay. Whether we consider the slave dynasty following the invasion of Muhammad Ghori, or the Tughlaqs, or the Khiljis, or the Sayyids, or the Lodhis, and lastly, even the great Mughals, their reigns unfold themselves into successive periods bearing the characteristics that Gibbon has described. From the point of view of the concept of India's unity, however, there are only three or four developments during the period of 600 years that followed which bear some significance. The first development was a series of military conquests undertaken by Alauddin Khilji with the assistance of his skillful general Malik Kafur who successfully subjugated the Hindu rulers of the south and extended the Khilji domain from Afghanistan to almost the Indian Ocean. But this was no more than a military conquest, and the result was that even towards the end of Alauddin Khilji's regime, signs of disintegration had appeared. Soon after his death, his mighty empire seemed a phantasma and a hideous dream. The most significant period from the point of Indian unity was, however, the reign of Akbar the Great, whose genius and practical common sense bore fruit in an unprecedented territorial expansion of the Mughal Empire from the cities of Delhi and Agra to the whole of the north and a part of the south. It also found expression in the enunciation and practice of principles of secular rulership, introduction of a uniform administrative, judicial, and fiscal system in the whole empire in a manner that would do credit even to modern states and the development of a language which was a synthesis between indigenous and foreign languages that were current in India of the time. 
Akbar's reign is remarkable also from another point of view. For the first time we find a dynasty transplanted in Indian soil and only within 20 years of its founder leaving his foreign home in the quest of a new empire seeking a permanent home amid alien surroundings. The dynasty not only adapted itself to its new conditions but promoted indigenous art, indigenous culture, indigenous religions and indigenous rulers. It is a remarkable tribute to the genius Vakbar that in the midst of a lifelong career of military conquest, he could devote himself to the arts of peace with as much zest and devotion as he could do to the science and art of war. There is perhaps hardly any period in Indian history in which the synthesis of original Indian and new foreign ways of life, culture, outlook and philosophy had gone so far during the short period of three or four decades. The same idea of synthesis in the field of religion was promoted by the Sufi and Bhakti movements which contained such luminaries of the religious universe as Mohiduddin Chisti, Nizamuddin Aulia, Tulsidas, Surdas, Mirabai, Ramanujachari and Kabir. If only Akbar had introduced a two-way system of intercommunal marriages, perhaps the development of unity of India would have acquired an accelerated pace. However, the process so well begun needed another genius to carry it on. If India had been so fortunate, it is possible that the course of history might have been different and we would have achieved a unity of culture and refinement as well as an administrative system which would have translated the concept of idealistic unity into the hard facts of life. But in the words of Shakespeare, time has its own revenges and instead of a genius, Akbar had a successor who had some virtues but many infirmities. During the regime of Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb, while India witnessed many scenes of magnificence, it also had the mortification of seeing the hands of the clock moving backwards. The regime of Aurangzeb, unfortunately, gave the coup de force to many of the healthy innovations of Akbar, and even though the territorial expansion of the Mughals practically covered the entire country, religious bigotry, mutual exclusiveness, interracial animosities, and conflicts and forces of disintegration asserted themselves. The history of India after Aurangzeb was one of feuds, perpetual changes of regimes, shameful scenes of rivalries, unsettled administration, and shifting loyalties, which not only put a stop to any historical development, but even destroyed some of the features of culture, refinement, economic well-being, and religious toleration, which had begun to fashion a pattern of Indian life that could have blossomed forth into national unity. It was upon this scene of Indian history that landed the East India Company. Starting from the small beginnings, factories transformed themselves into settlements, then into forts and territories, and finally into an empire. Simultaneously with the development came a continuous process of unification until the great Indian mutiny changed it into a simultaneous movement of certain contradictory forces, many of them presaging a united India, while others containing in them not only the germs but also actual instruments of separatism and disintegration. The beginnings of company rule in India coincided with a wave of liberalism that under the inspiration of Fox, Pitt, Burke and Sheridan 
swept over the British Isles towards the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, that is both before and after the French Revolution. It was under the impact of this liberalism and its conflict with imperialism that the policy of East India Company alternated between intervention, subsidiary alliances, non-intervention, ring fence and subordinate isolation in its relations with the Indian rulers. The real effective and lasting policy of the company was however evolved as late as the 20s of the 19th century when under a succession of able and competent administrators like Octoloni and Metcalf, the supreme power and paramountcy of the company was evolved. It was then recognized that the British government was a supreme guardian, even in Indian states, of the general tranquility, law and right. This theory of company's relationship with Indian rulers after the company's dominions had spread over the larger part of the Indian territory and the final challenge to it from the Maratha Confederacy had been contained, finally culminated in the policy of Lord Dalhousie based on annexation and the doctrine of lapse. As Lee Warner said, annexation was not a mere incident arising from the peculiar views of a single governor general or from a temporary reaction against the king-making policy of the previous administration, but it was a distinct policy clearly enunciated and understood by the court of directors in England and the company's agents in India. By the time, therefore, the Indian mutiny intervened to stop the process of converting the yellow patches on the Indian map into pink, the process of territorial unification had gone far enough to cover much the large part of India. Along with that unification had progressed the superimposition of a uniform judicial, legal and administrative system and revenue policies which at that time, along with police, meant the predominant element in the relationship between the ruler and the ruled. But other formative influences were also at work to bring together the elements of Indian polity which only four decades earlier had presented a lurid picture of disintegration and discord. The state had begun to interfere with outmoded social practices. It had introduced a far-reaching educational reform under the inspiration of Lord Macaulay's famous dispatch. Instruments of expression of public opinion had begun to acquire shape. The orthodox religions had started to yield to modern ideas. Simultaneously, a cultural and religious renaissance had gripped the most enlightened province of those days, namely Bengal, and enlightened laws and administrative systems had emerged all over the country. The entrustment of final powers of government to the Governor General, subject to the control of the Court of Directors and the British government, had also begun to result in the laying down of healthy principles and practices of an integrated and well-knit Indian administration. The liberal spirit of the times is typified in the high-sounding and pontifical tribute which Macaulay paid to the most enlightened Governor-General of those days, Lord William Bentick, in the following words, who ruled India with eminent prudence, integrity and benevolence, who infused into Oriental despotism the spirit of British freedom, who never forgot that the end of government is the happiness of the governed, who abolished cruel rights, who effaced humiliating distinctions, who gave liberty to the expression of public opinion, whose constant study it was to elevate the intellectual and moral character of the nation committed to his charge. Similar nobility of sentiments found its way in the Queen's proclamation of 1858. She said, in their prosperity shall be our strength 
in their contentment our security, in their gratitude our best reward. With such approach on the part of the rulers of the day, it was inevitable that the country should turn from the post-Aurangzeb period of anarchy, chaos and unsettled conditions to a life of peace, tranquility, integrated progress, uniform systems of administration and laws, educational and social reforms, and an awakening which under the spirit of Western ideas and outlook was bound to promote national consciousness. For the first time, therefore, the idealistic concept of Indian unity began to acquire both a local habitation and a name, and India or Bharat began to acquire the virtues of divinity and deification. Thus developed the cult of Mother India, which was in course of time to constitute a mighty challenge to the very power that was instrumental in its birth. The progress towards unity and uniformity would have been both ruthless and rapid, but for the fact that the Indian mutiny shocked the British and Indian governments out of their zeal and enthusiasm. The mutiny constituted a powerful attempt on the part of various elements discontented with the forward policy of the Indian government to oust the company's authority from the Indian subcontinent. It was more the hatred of the English than any loyalty to the concept of Indian self-rule that motivated the Great Revolt. But the events of that revolt instilled in the ruling power the fear of adverse public sentiment roused to the point of a concerted challenge to the very foundations of that power. What was worse, the British government began to regard the states as breakwaters in the storm which would have swept over us in one great wave. The mutiny thus became an event which introduced in the psychology of the new dispensation that followed hesitation, caution, non-intervention and status quo in matters of religious and social reforms. The process of unification went on in the educational, administrative, legal, fiscal and deliberative fields, but that of territorial integration and assimilation and social reforms which would have broken down the barriers of castes and creeds received a sudden check. The yellow patches of the Indian states were also to remain undisturbed. In fact, their status improved from subordinate isolation to subordinate union and the rulers of Indian states became the bulwark of alien rule in the country. The unifying influence of the English language with its liberal formative role fortunately continued unabated and brought into play despite the attempts of authority to promote a cleavage between Hindus and Muslims, nationalistic forces that culminated in the founding of the National Congress in 1885. This historical survey of the process of unification in India up to 1857, in the setting of similar process in the rest of the world, bears out the difference in the pace of progress when the concept remains in the realm of idealism and philosophy as compared to what it can be under the stress and compulsion of events and practical necessities. There is no doubt that in the 18th and 19th centuries, political thought in the West assumed gradually a revolutionary character. From the justification or criticism of absolutism, it, it developed into the supremacy of the popular will and finally flowed into two parallel streams, one of class conflict based on materialistic interpretations of history and the other of state and other forms of revolutionary and evolutionary socialism. Under the influence of these broad streams of thought, the expansion of the English-speaking world and the practical necessities of development in compartments 
in different parts of the globe, the concept of democracy and unification marched hand in hand wherever there were European populations. But the colonies were formed not out of geographical or economical self-contained units, but out of the fortuitous circumstances of trade and other economic and political necessities of the colonial powers. It was under this influence that religion, language, culture, and other considerations that should normally determine the evolution of states faded into the background. The map of the world thus became the result as much of accidents of history as of the combined action, reaction, and counteraction of different factors that I have mentioned in my survey of the world process. In India, however, the concept of unity was virtually in the abstract right up to the advent of the Muslim power, notwithstanding the fact that the country was largely in the hands of those who inhabited the subcontinent. Its realization remained a dream of philosophers, seers, thinkers, and religious leaders. The advent of the Muslim power introduced an element which was bound to detract from even the process of unification as a subject of thinking. Social life virtually divided itself into two camps, namely those of the ruling caste and of the ruled. Akbar's reign made a significant departure from this development, but it was too short-lived in terms of time to yield any immediate or fruitful result. But the process of synthesis or integration began by him imperceptibly percolated into the common people, and there is no doubt that notwithstanding the political cataclysmic changes, the synthesis of Indian life continued to grow rather than recede backwards. If only political and administrative unification had kept pace with this synthesization, the history of India would have been different. On the other hand, the political anarchy and administrative chaos put back the hands of the clock of unification with the result that when the British came upon the scene, there was much more diversification of the elements of the Indian life, political, social, and territorial, than there was perhaps at any time before. The threads of unification were resumed by the time machine once again, but this time the process was simultaneous with the development of administrative, physical, legal, and constitutional systems and the growth of political institutions. It was not until this development threatened the survival of the imperialistic power that authority decided not so much to reverse the process as to create divisions and contradictions which would perpetuate the domination and interest of the foreign power. And the ultimate failure of that attempt and the evolution of two states in lieu of the philosophical concept of one state in the subcontinent is a story which I must now relate. The Indian mutiny was in many ways the turning point in India's history. For the British rule in India, it meant a changeover from the company's rule to the direct assumption of the government of India by the British Crown and Parliament. This involved the superintendence, direction and control of the Secretary of State over the government of India, which in its turn clearly meant a unitary form of government. This was a change not only of form but of substance. Until 1833, the government of India had been carried on more in terms of precedences than in terms of a central unit. Even after 1833, when the change of designation took place in the highest British functionary in India, from that of Governor-General India to that of Governor-General of India, the presidency governors continued to be comparatively immune from very close control of the central authority. 
From the point of view of unification of India, therefore, it was undoubtedly a change of great significance. For the first time in India's history, an effective central administration was established, the writ of which was to run from Kashmir to Cape Comorin and from Balochistan to Bengal, which then included Assam. Ideologically also, from the point of view of nationalism, the change had immense potentialities. With the centralization of administration in what was then known as British India, it was inescapable that the relationship with the Indian states should also be put on a uniform basis. Thus it was only after 1858 that this relationship was subjected to an almost uniform set of precedents, conventions and usages which could virtually be codified into a set of rules and regulations. The needs of administration, apart from those of liberal education, rendered it necessary that English as the language of the rulers should be the one link which could bring together different indigenous linguistic areas into a common means of communication. The spread of Western philosophy and thought were bound to accelerate the process of unification, but the combination of that thought with Indian philosophy generated sparks of renaissance which affected Indian intelligentsia profoundly during the years that followed. The generation of European civil servants which came to India after the mutiny was imbued with liberal ideas of government affected as they were by ideas that governed series of reform bills and of philosophers like John Stuart Mills and parliamentarians like Bright. It was therefore not surprising that one of them, Alexander Hume, helped us to found the Congress in 1885 and thereby released forces in the country which were to start a nationalist movement, the message of which was gradually to spread throughout the country. On one side, the urge for self-realization on the part of Indians, and on the other, the need on the part of the administration to consult public opinion, resulted in a series of reforms which brought, even though in a very limited sphere, representatives of public opinion in association with the uniform system of deliberation, lawmaking, and administration. Thus, the narrow stream of unification, which originated from distant philosophical heights, had begun to receive strength from many a channel of thought and action, and was gradually broadening into a clear, majestic river which opened up fresh fields and pastures new of nationalist enterprise. This expansion in the process of development began, however, to cause the ruling authority serious concern as to its future. It realized too late that adverse forces had been released, threatening the continuance of its rule and the progress of which could not be checked. Consequently, halting measures of reforms to broaden the scope of deliberative assemblies were taken in 1892 and 1909 to increase the representational character of the legislatures. At the same time, to create difficulties in the path of self-government within a few years of each other, two measures of far-reaching consequences were also launched, both of which were calculated to drive a wedge in the nationalist ranks, one the partition of Bengal and the other the introduction of separate electorates. Both these were in the long run destined to release forces that were on one side to strengthen the movement of nationalism and integration and on the other to create conditions for separation of communities that were to involve partition. There is no doubt that the nationalist movement with its different cults of violence, 
responsive cooperation and non-violence during the next 40 years of partition of Bengal was to create such a vast upsurge of idealism and patriotism as the country had not witnessed at any time in its history. On the other hand, the gradual enlargement of the bridgehead of the separate electorates after 1909, with its offshoots and ramifications, was to create animosities and bitterness that threatened eventually to divide the whole country into so many hostile armed or unarmed camps. Simultaneously with these developments, the process of unification of judicial, fiscal, administrative, and legislative systems went on almost unchecked until for the first time in 1919, the process of devolution of authority to provinces commenced. In the meantime, the progress towards unity and unification had received a fillip during the First World War. The administration then became highly centralized and wartime needs placed more and more of authority under the direction and control of the center. The First World War was significant in another respect in that the minds of the British government began to turn more and more towards self-government for India. It was for the first time in the declaration of August 1917 that the goal of the British policy was defined as that of the progressive realization of responsible government in India as an integral part of the British Empire. At about the same time, the nationalist forces had also closed their ranks, for in 1916, the Congress and the Muslim League entered upon the famous Lucknow Pact, which formed a concordant between the two organizations for an electoral arrangement of seats and other cognate matters. Whatever the consequences of the war might have been on the positive side, even the negative side had its blessings for the movement of unification. The disappointments and disillusionments after the war, as against the hopes and expectations that were aroused when it was on, brought about a complete transformation in the attitude of the majority of Indians towards British rule in India. These disappointments and disillusionments found their apostle in Mahatma Gandhi, who galvanized the whole nation into a sudden and spontaneous activity by his movement of non-violent non-cooperation and by the adoption of Khilafat movement as that of the Congress itself. Thus in one broad stream of nationalist forces were merged the dissatisfaction of the large mass of people with the British government's scheme of reforms for India embodied in the Act of 1919 and the discontent amongst the Muslims as a result of the allied treatment of Turkey. What Gandhiji believed to be a marriage of conviction, however, proved to be a marriage of convenience. Soon the honeymoon was over, and there was no doubt that several leading members of the Muslim community gradually drifted away from the ranks of the Congress. Forces of counter-revolution came into prominence, and for some years the country found a movement of communal reaction, gaining some upper hand both amongst the Hindus and the Muslims under the active encouragement of the minions of foreign administration. The British policy in the country had, however, a direct influence in obstructing the growth of the nationalism <coughs> by creating one vested interest after another. A system of communal representation, the beneficiaries of which were originally intended to be Muslims, gradually covered Sikhs, Christians, Anglo-Indians, and scheduled classes, as, as well was brought into operation. Indian life thus became divided administratively into compartments, ethnologically into races and communities, 
culturally into linguistic formations and socially and politically into religious groups. Still, the Congress movement and organization could not be halted, and notwithstanding deliberate attempts to accentuate differences, there was an overwhelming unity of thought amongst the political parties on the demand for self-government, which culminated in an all-party convention and the Nehru Report of 1928. Even though the report failed to evoke any response from the British government, it succeeded in extorting from it in 1929 a declaration in favor of dominion status. At the same time, Gandhiji had taken the message of the Congress to the villages throughout the country. He had also preached the gospel of anti-untouchability, which has spread wider than people were at one time led to expect. Nationalism, which had hitherto been confined to big and small towns, strengthened its following manifold among the masses. The manner in which millions in all parts of the country flocked to Gandhiji's meetings and to the annual and other sessions of the Congress indicated that the barriers which formerly separated different parts of the country on account of seemingly irreconcilable differences of caste and creed, linguistic divisions and religious followings had at last broken down. The rocks of political vested interest created by the British government, however, still obstructed the ship of the Congress in its course through troubled waters. At times, they became so menacing as to threaten it with wreck. It was about this time that the British government, in pursuance of its declaration of dominion status, held a series of roundtable conferences to fashion the future constitution of India. The basis of that constitution of India was unanimously agreed to be a federation embracing both British India and the Indian states. A large measure of agreement was reached on the contents of the constitution, but finally on the questions of representation of communities, of the safeguards the British government proposed to incorporate largely in its own interests and of the position of princes in the constitution, the Congress under Gandhiji and the British government parted company. Apart from the fact that the Congress wanted to go much farther than the British government or some other Indian political parties were prepared to do in the direction of centralization, it insisted on a much greater measure of freedom and independence for the country than the British government was prepared to concede or some of the Indian parties, particularly the princes and the Muslim League, were prepared to ask for. This resulted in the parting of the ways not only between the Congress and the government of India, which put important Congress leaders behind the bars even before Gandhiji returned to India, but also between the Congress and the Muslims, led by the late Aga Khan and Mr. Jinnah, or other parties which had a prominent communal character. The British government, however, went ahead with its proposals, and finally the Government of India Act of 1935 was enacted with schemes of provincial autonomy and a central setup based partly on direct elections and partly on provincial representation. A scheme of federation was also incorporated, but its implementation was subject to negotiations with the princes, which proved too long and too difficult until the Second World War put an end to them. The Government of India Act of, 19, of uh, 1935, with a scheme of provincial autonomy and an effective central government, which could, in the event of emergency, assume control of the entire country, provided the constitution for the country right up to the 26th January 1950, when it was replaced by a new constitution. 
It is a tribute to the framers of the Act that it could be adapted not only to the conditions that prevailed until independence, but also to the conditions after independence when India, even though within the Commonwealth, was virtually an independent country. The reasons mainly were that the Act of 1935 was an epitome of unity in diversity, and whilst it set up a strong and effective central government, it made concessions to the susceptibilities of the provinces and largely catered for their aspirations for autonomy. This is not the place for me to go into details of the various developments since 1939 when the Allies declared war against Germany. Apart from the fact that it would be too big a task to do so within the compass of this lecture, those details are hardly germane to the broad subject with which I am for the moment concerned. I would therefore content myself with highlighting a few significant characteristics or those developments in order to bring out their importance to the unification of the country. There is no doubt that the Second World War accelerated the pace of India's progress towards independence from British rule. Even though it witnessed an unprecedented suppression of liberty, both of the citizens and the congressmen, the desire to secure India's participation in the war effort involved the British government in certain experiments. These, without the direct participation of the Congress and the League, meant creation of only shadows instead of substances of Indian authority. Nevertheless, even the shadows of Indian unification were of some service to the cause of eventual transfer of power on which the Congress insisted, for they demonstrated how insufficiently based the British government in the country was for purposes of an effective government. The Quit India movement of Gandhiji, despite some internal opposition from prominent leaders of the Congress itself, seemed outwardly to involve a forlorn hope, but eventually proved an acceptable slogan, not only to the country, but even to the British government. No doubt, the British government meant by such threat to promote the cause of a settlement amongst the political parties, particularly the Congress and the League, but the fact remains that a movement which was a non-violent war cry of the Congress during the peak period of Allied war effort became, even though in another form, an accepted policy of the British government during the time of peace. There was another development of a serious nature, but of a contrary tendency to unification which was taking place, particularly amongst the British officialdom and among the princes with the support of some of the elements of Indian public life. During the war, the British government was insisting on the representation in the central government of not only the League and the Congress, but also other political parties, representing the depressed classes, the Sikhs, Europeans, and others. The Crips offer of 1942, for the first time contained in the government scheme of things, the germs of separation and provided for a situation from which the princes could remain aloof under a technical concession of independence. Subsequently, the parleys between Gandhiji and Mr. Jinnah had revealed a possibility of the former conceding Pakistan in some form or the other in a desperate measure to arrive at an understanding with Mr. Jinnah in order to pave the way for the departure of the British from India. A word now may be said also of the developments that, are, that were taking place in the Indian states in regard to the future of the country. After the British Crown took over the Government of India in 1858, the relationship with the Indian states was regulated by the Viceroy and Governor-General under the superintendence of the Secretary of State, 
in the same manner as the two functioned in relation to the administration of the government of India. Outwardly, this relationship came more and more to be regulated by treaties, engagements, and synods. But really speaking, it was done under more or less uniform set of conventions, precedents, and usages. The rights and obligations of the states arising out of these agreements varied from state to state, but gradually a tendency for codification was also manifesting itself. Nevertheless, in matters like currency, coinage, customs, communications, courts and tariffs, the two parts of India, namely the British Indian and the Indian states, had to come closer. 562 units containing 45% of the total Indian territories and 24% of India's total population and dispersed over different parts of the subcontinent could hardly lend themselves to such speedy arrangements as economical and political necessities demanded. The situation that prevailed can best be described in the language of the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Indian Constitution that framed the Government of India Act of 1935 as follows. The existing arrangements under which economic policies vitally affecting the interests of India as a whole have to be formulated and carried out are being daily put to an ever-increasing strain as the economic life of India develops. For instance, any imposition of internal indirect taxation in British India involves, with few exceptions, the conclusion of agreements with a number of states for concurrent taxation within their frontiers or in default of such agreement, the establishment of some system of internal customs duties, an impossible alternative, even if it were not precluded by the terms of the Crown's treaties with some states. Worse than this, India may be said even to lack a general custom system uniformly applied throughout the subcontinent. On the one hand, with certain exceptions, the states are free themselves to impose internal customs policies which cannot but obstruct the flow of trade. Even at the maritime ports situated in the states, the administration of the tariffs is imperfectly coordinated with that of British India ports, while the separate rights of the states in these respects are safeguarded by long-standing treaties or usages acknowledged by the Crown. On the other hand, tariff policies in which every part of India is interested are laid down by a government of India and British India legislature in which no Indian state has a vote voice, though the states constitute only slightly less than half the area and one-fourth of the population of India. Moreover, a common company law for India, a common banking law, a common body of legislation on copyright and trademarks, a common system of communications are like impossible. Conditions such as these, which have caused trouble and uneasiness in the past, are already becoming and must in the future increasingly become intolerable as industrial and commercial development spreads from British India to the states. Thus the states still remain passionately attached to a separate treatment from the rest of India and the Butler Committee described the demand in the words which ring so hollow in terms of today, namely, the states demand that without their own agreement, the rights and obligations of the paramount power should not be assigned to persons who are not under its control. For instance, an Indian government in British India responsible to an Indian legislature. If any government in the nature of a dominion government should be constituted in British India, such a government would clearly be a new government resting on a new and written constitution. 
The contingency has not arisen. We feel bound, however, to draw attention to the really grave apprehension of the princes on this score and to record our strong opinion that in view of the fact of the historical nature of the relationship between the paramount power and the princes, the latter should not be transferred without their own agreement to a relationship with a new government in British India responsible to an Indian legislature. This demand of the states was conceded in the Act of 1935 under which a new authority, namely the Crown representative, was set up contrary to the history of the previous 80 years in which their relationship with the Indian states was the concern of the government of India and the political department was one of its departments. That department now became a separate entity and the office of the political advisor was set up as a parallel to that of the members of the Governor General's Executive Council. The demand of the princes for separation gradually became crystallized more and more during the war and at a meeting of the Standing Committee of the Princes held on the 18th September 1944, the Nawab of Bhopal as Chancellor of the Princes gave notice of his intention to move the following resolution at the session of the Chamber to be held in December. The Chamber of Princes considers it necessary to reiterate in the most unequivocal and emphatic terms that the Crown's relationship with the States and the Crown's power in respect of the States cannot and should not be transferred to any third party or other authority without the consent of the states concerned. The Chamber requests His Excellency, the Crown Representative, to be pleased to convey to His Majesty's Government the grave misgivings and apprehensions aroused in the states by the recent tendency to alter the states' relationships with the Crown and to qualify the observances of the Crown's obligations by unilateral action without the consent of the states notwithstanding the solemn royal pronouncements that these treaty rights shall be maintained unimpaired and the recent assurances conveyed to the Indian princes by His Majesty's government that the fulfillment of the fundamental obligations arising out of their treaties and sanads remains an integral part of His Majesty's government's policy. The resolution was disallowed by the Viceroy, but it shows which way the anti-nationalist wind of the princes was blowing. In fact, very soon, along with the cry of Hindustan and Pakistan, the slogan of Rajasthan was also raised, and there was no doubt that serious forces were at work to create conditions in the country which would not have rested with only Pakistan, but which would have also divided the country into four or five regions that could at least be held together by a loose confederation. We have now come to a crucial stage in the history of India. During the war, the official policies and experiments of the Viceroy under the direction of the British government in reconstituting the government had alienated both the Congress and the League without bridging the gulf between the two. On the other hand, the British officialdom succeeded in driving a wedge between the Indian states and British India that threatened to reverse the process of unification that had gone on since the British completed their suzerainty over India. The situation in June 1945, particularly after the failure of Simla Conference under conditions which clearly indicated that the reactionary forces were still active, to sabotage the well-meaning efforts of the Viceroy was one of confusion, disillusionment, bitterness and disappointment. There was a general expectation that Mr. Churchill, who had openly declared that he had not become the Prime Minister 
to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire and had steered the ship of state safely and victoriously through the war would be returned to power. But Mr. Attlee and the Labour Party scored a large majority over the Conservatives. The formation of the first Labour government with a clear majority in the House of Commons revived drooping spirits and fading hopes in the country and almost overnight the clouds of gloom and despair that had not only threatened the horizon but also had cast their shadows over us cleared the way for a bright sunshine. It would be my endeavour in my second lecture to give a picture of what followed and how we achieved in consequence the realisation of a dream of unity and thus secured the opportunity of self-realisation and fulfilment. <laughs>